The information in this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. Welcome back to episode 58 of the Practice of Being Seen podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, relationship therapist, consultant, and mentor to therapists. The Practice of Being Seen podcast is a collection of connectfulness conversations. We join together with therapists and anyone interested in restorative transformation. We examine how to create ripples of change within ourselves and the world around us. If you've ever aspired to step into a leadership role or consider yourself a leader but want to do it better, you're going to love this conversation. I'm speaking with Tracy Rubble, a San Francisco-based psychotherapist whose specialties include couples counseling and working with driven professionals and leaders. She's also a public speaker and the CEO of multiple projects, including her group practice, Psyched Counseling, and a community listening project called Sidewalk Talk, which is now in 40 cities and 12 countries with 1,200 volunteers and growing. Tracy and I are talking about redefining what leadership really means, how to truly listen, and why both are so important to human life. Tracy has a unique process in getting on stage, from concept to delivery and post-review. It's about giving yourself permission, working through the imposter syndrome, and noticing when you feel most embodied. We also talk about the importance of relationships as leaders, with our tribes, our partners, and with those we lead and work with. Tracy has learned valuable ways of ensuring that she and others feel supported, to combat the loneliness as well as honor our existence. Deep listening is a big piece of that, but I love the way that Tracy redefines what listening really means. This is truly the practice of being seen. Welcome, Tracy. I'm so glad to have you here with me today. I'm excited to get to connect with you, Rebecca. Oh, this has been a long time coming. We had a chance to connect a little while back, and I'm just really excited for today's conversation. Let's talk a little bit about the work that you do, and then I'm going to bring us into a deeper conversation around women and leadership. But to start with, can you give our listeners a little sense of who you are if they don't already know you? Sure. So I am a San Francisco psychotherapist, and my primary specialty is working with couples. But I also, five years ago, started a little side project where I started getting therapists to write for a blog that then turned into a counseling center called Psyched in San Francisco. And so that's still up and running. And then along the way, I also started a street listening project to bring kind of human connection back in style called Sidewalk Talk. So I kind of got three things going on. I've got my private practice. I've got a clinic with some magazine stuff on the side. And then I've got Sidewalk Talk. And just so that our listeners know, we're catching you in between a whole bunch of things today. You're actually getting ready for an event at a conference for Sidewalk Talk. I am sitting on the ground in the hallway at the San Francisco Hilton as we speak. And they are setting up for Wisdom 2.0, which is a conference where I really got to speak at one of my largest speaking events so far last year. 
And this year we're invited back where we've brought all of our street listening set up into the hotel, our dirty chairs that we've been carting around on sidewalks for three years. And we're going to be recruiting people at the conference to both be listeners and to be heard. Mm. And so I just got done setting up the pop-up. Love it. Thank you for making space to talk to us in the middle of this day. You mentioned something. You talked about how this was one of the biggest speaking events that you ever did, Mm -hmm. which I think is a huge part of leadership is getting yourself out there and being heard. But there's so much I know that goes into getting yourself ready for speaking. And I know that you have a really unique, very much a Tracy way of doing it. Can you share that, your process a little bit with us? Yeah, and before I share the process, I'll share the inner work that has to happen even before I get up there. You know, I have known that speaking is my superpower for a long, long time, but I hid out because I felt like if I were to raise the flag and say, hey, I really like to speak and I'm good at it, that it meant that I was a narcissistic jerk and that I was just wanting attention. And so I didn't do it. And then the other pieces, you know, do I know enough as a therapist, you know, all those different storylines that go into your head. When I got to speak at Wisdom, what became clear, I actually had some people come up to me and write me and say, I had an impact on them. Mm. So that, I'm like, right, that. And then the other piece is, unlike some people who get really anxious when they speak, I don't. I get really embodied. So for me, I'm actually more grounded and I almost feel like I'm transmitting something through me when I'm speaking and I'm more authentic in a way. And I don't, we could, we could pick apart all the psychological things about that. But for me, that's a pretty good signpost that my heart is in the right place when I'm doing it, right? I'm not sort of acting out some kind of compensatory precociousness, you know? I think this is such an interesting and important part of this conversation because so often when we are striving towards something, when we are trailblazing, it is easy to get pulled into directions of what I think I should do. And what you're really talking about is this inner noticing of where you are embodied being a guide. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then the other stuff around when you're on the right path, things line up for you so that you get more speaking opportunities. I got to fly out to Manchester, England, and speak in Manchester. And I've gotten to invited to speak at some companies, and I spoke at a conference two weeks ago. And so if it starts to get easy, right, you don't, it's not like, you know, pushing water uphill, then it's probably a good sign as well. I'm not saying that it doesn't take effort and that everything's easy. It takes effort. But I think the biggest efforting for me has been giving myself permission to just stand in it Mm. all the way. Talk to us more about that permission, because that feels like that's a whole nother process that I am pretty sure so many of my listeners, myself included, are on a journey of. Yeah, well, I'm still on the journey myself. But, you know, last year when I was at this conference, I got to meet Richard Schwartz, who is the, you know, founder of Internal Family Systems, and we were both at the speaker's dinner. And, you know, the speaker's dinner, there were famous people there. 
And I remember this one guy said to me, gosh, didn't you feel like you had arrived? I said, no, I took all my neurotic stuff with me there too. I felt like I didn't belong. I was shy. I couldn't talk to anyone. And so I went up to Richard Schwartz. I said, oh my God, I feel like a total wallflower right now. He goes, oh my God, me too. So well, what are you doing? He goes, I'm talking to all my parts. I said, yes, that. <laughs> I need to talk to my parts. <laughs> So I said, let's both stand here and let's talk to our parts together. (laughs) (laughs) So for me, I have a little kid part in me that is very precocious and just wants attention. And I try to notice without shaming her. I also have a competitive part of me that feels a great deal of self-worth around achievement. Mm -hmm. So I just notice her, right? But neither of those are gratifying to speak from right? They're very anxious. They're disembodied. They're wounded. They're ungrounded. And it's very exhausting to speak from those places, right? There's a vibrational frequency to it that it just doesn't feel great for me. However, when I can nurture those parts of myself and really stand in my truth, I feel energized rather than de-energized. And I do feel like I get to tap into the collective wisdom in the room as well, right? I really love sort of feeling the, like I'm a conduit for something much larger than myself as well. You know, I can't help but think about your work with Sidewalk Talk and how so much of that work is about listening. And Mm -hmm. As you are this conduit, as you tap into the energy in the room, there's also a listening that is happening there, isn't there? Absolutely, right? Because the listening to myself is probably the biggest gift, right? It's, it's sort of that mutuality. You give it and then you realize how much you need it. And that's continually my work, as it is for a lot of people in industrialized society, disconnection between head and heart or being embodied and being in the intellect. So um, work. Yeah. Yeah. So bring us in a little bit and talk to us about your process for speaking, which is part of how you lead. It's not the whole of how you lead, but it's a part of it. So let's come in through this lens and then let's make that lens even bigger as we push out through the speaking. But let's start with how do you prepare a speech? Because I love your process from what I know of it. Yeah, well, first of all, I have to, you know, like I'd said before, do some inner work around any imposter syndrome stuff that says, who do you think you are that you think that you could talk about this? And I've gotten pretty far down the path now. I think, you know, what I try to do is give homage to the people that inspired me and the theorists that I'm quoting so that I'm not co-opting anyone's work. And for me, that just feels like that keeps me grounded and high integrity. So I'm not compensating or, you know, this is how I understand it. And these are the things that I think, and this is where I get it from. So the first step for me, when I'm preparing to talk about something, like I gave a talk three weeks ago called Good Marriages Don't Grow on Trees. And I was talking about relationships after you have children. And what I do is I do do a lot of research before I give a talk. So while I'm a couples therapist and I have lots of training, I don't rest on my laurels. I read and prepare a lot. So the first thing that I do is I just freeform read on maybe five topics that I'm curious about. And I'll find some research and I'll dig into, you know, some online journals and databases, right? And I open up a Google document and I start 
jotting down notes of just research and I let it be fun, right? It's almost like the most fun aspects of studying because I don't have to turn out a paper afterwards, right? And so I let myself hum with that for a while. And hopefully I get to a place where there's an aha moment. But usually what happens, I get really excited. And that excitement starts to then build into flow, right? So I sit with that. And then I go back to that Google document after taking notes. And usually it's about five or six pages of notes with sources. And I start highlighting things. And from there, I will get out a piece of paper and handwrite key topics that I want to cover, right? And from there, I'll then sort of do some bullet points of the corresponding research and things that I might want to quote, right? And then I do build a PowerPoint. A lot of the talks that I give, I, I do have a PowerPoint. I'm, I was in corporate life, so I used to be in sales. So this used to be part of my job. So this is a process that I've been doing for a long, long, long time. This is an old uh, muscle. It's an old muscle. <laughs> And for me, I have a very particular way that I use PowerPoints. I don't like to put everything on the slide that I'm going to talk about. I put a provocative statement. I gave a talk three months ago at the Battery, which is a big sort of private executive club. So I was presenting to a bunch of CEOs and senior executives. And I would just have a quote. So it was a provocative quote with a photograph that got folks to feel something. But I don't like to tell people what I'm going to say because otherwise they tune out. They'll read the slide and then check out. Instead, I try to use PowerPoints to get people to lean into the conversation a little bit more in a way, almost treating them like their art, right? I really like to have an image that sort of is provocative and a quote that's provocative, but that's on cue. I love so that. that I, yeah. And so I really encourage people not to put everything that they're going to say on the slide. It's a cheat, I know, but you can trust yourself if you prepare a lot and it, it comes across a lot less canned and a lot more authentic, Right. So after I've got that foundational piece, I never script a talk. I never type up verbatim what I'm going to talk about ever because I'm also going to read the room. When I was at Wisdom last year, I actually took notes on all the things that other speakers spoke about. And I started my talk by recapping some of the things that I had heard already that day that I felt related to the talk that I was about to give, which I also think is really relational. It ties it in, it connects the dots for people. It respects the other speakers. Plus I was excited by some of the things that I'd said, right? Yeah. So. I really then take those bullet points and I drive into work every day and I grab my phone recorder and I just start talking into the phone. I start speaking different things that feel important to me, trying on a tone of voice, trying on a way of saying it, going back and listening to it again, but just practicing voice intonation where there's going to be a pause, you know, really getting the flow of it down and adding things in, listening, did I miss a piece of data there that would have created some context and relevancy, things like that. Oh, and God, I love this. It relates back to a conversation I had at the end of last season with Elsie Escobar. And I think it's just so important for us to remember this, that speaking is an art form. And it's really important for us to practice it. And that part of practicing it is also listening back to ourselves. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and I think that if you can get someone to even videotape to look at how you, you know, use your body and move around. It's funny because I just was interviewed to give a TED Talk and at this one particular TED Talk location, they have you stand on a red dot. 
<laughs> I'm like, I think I'm going to have to find a different TED Talk to speak at because I don't like to stand still when I talk. I really like to move forward and back and around and engage with the audience. And how would I do that, having to stand on a red dot and not move? I, I don't know if I could even stay embodied and do that. It would feel very strange to me. So, yeah, it's, you know, if you think about it as a dance, you know, you're dancing with the energy of the people that you're speaking to, and the people that you're speaking to are a collective in the form of an audience, and the audience is one body. And, you know, just like you lean forward and you lean back when you're talking to someone, you might cross your legs, you might squint your eyes, you might scratch your chin all in a stance of empathic resonance, the same thing happens when I'm giving a talk, right? Yeah. I give myself lots of permission to slow down, to laugh. I am silly. I'm a silly, mildly inappropriate, some people would say massively inappropriate person. So <laughs> I have, the one thing that's shifted in the last two talks that I've given is I've risked sharing a little bit more about myself. And that went over really well. Yeah, it went well. Yeah, I really had to sit with what it means to be a clinician and sharing things about my personal life. And I recognize, you know what, this is my path. And there's a way to do it where it's just like if you might choose to self-disclose in a session, is it in service of the audience? Sometimes it's in service of a laugh because, you know, I was giving a talk recently and the energy in the room got real low for a minute. And so I said some screw up I made as a parent with my kid and it got a lot of laughs, you know, but it's all a dance. And that relational storytelling is what people want. They want you to be connected to your heart and your body when you're talking to them. They don't want you to just impart a bunch of data. Yeah. And it makes me feel so much better when I'm speaking that way, you know? That makes total sense. Yeah. I love it, though. I want to do more of it. So I realized that I have more to learn, so I'm excited to learn more. I, I got to go to New York City and get interviewed by Jonathan Fields, and he and I were talking about speaking, and he recommended some good speaking coaches, and another speakers bureau contacted me, and I don't know if I want to be on a speaking circuit. That's not a lifestyle I'd want to lead, because those kind of folks are on planes all the time, but right. I definitely want to hone my skills more and do more of it locally, where I don't have to get on a plane. Oh, that's beautiful. I love how these things are finding their way to you, and I think that that is a big part of putting yourself in position for like being ready being ready yeah. for things to find you. Yeah. And, you know, I didn't do this in a vacuum either. I have lots of people that nudge me, poke me, champion me, lecture me, <laughs> beat me. No, not really. But, <laughs> but really, I have a couple girlfriends that like kind of ride my ass a little bit and say, look, you need to get out there. You're playing small, girl. Get on because, out there. Because they believe in you and they know the messages that you're bringing forth. Yeah. Yeah. And so that means that you've also built a bit of a tribe. You've built a community around you who supports you. Yeah, absolutely. It's taken some time. I, I'm the queen of, you know, this is where I'll, this is a personal sharing. <laughs> I'm the queen of finding the unavailable mother and trying to convert her. <laughs> so I have a long history of, I'm a recovering and sometimes not recovering anxious attachment status person. And yeah, so it's it's really taken, you know, a lot of personal growth to learn how to build a tribe, but I finally have. 
I yeah. finally have. I think it takes personal growth for all of us to learn how to build a tribe that really, truly supports us because we all come from something. I mean, as a relationship therapist, both of us, we know what some of those stories are and how they get in the way of relationships, but it doesn't stop to show up in our own lives, especially in our professional endeavors. Mm-hmm. The same stuff that gets in the way of our relationships can impact us everywhere. Thank you for illustrating that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You have done some big stuff as a woman, as a leader, as a professional, as a therapist. You keep growing and you keep doing things outside the box and carving your own path as you go there. Not very many of the things that you've done have already been done by somebody else, maybe opening a private practice, but then you transformed that practice into a group in a way that others haven't. You started with a magazine or a blog first. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So can you talk to us a little bit about leadership? Whenever I think about leadership, there's, there's a bunch of things I think about, but one of the things that I keep thinking about is that as a leader, when you're the one that is carving your own path, blazing your own trail, finding your way, it can be a little bit lonely. Mm, and how. You know, that's actually one of the most interesting things about the talk that I gave to those executives that I mentioned a bit ago. There were about 40 in the room, and they were all VP, CEO level, director level. And I asked them, how many of you, by a show of hands in this room, can have a high-fidelity day, talked to a gazillion people, feel really good about your productivity, but when you check in with yourself at the end of the day, you feel lonely. And every person in that room, and I was so proud of them for how vulnerable they were, they raised their hand. They said as leaders, they feel lonely a lot, and I feel lonely a lot. It's something that I have to actually really track, because if there's one thing that I fall down on, here I lead this human connection project, but then I forget to connect to humans. Oh, that's powerful. Yeah. I have, in a way, the way I have to work with myself around this is I literally just have to schedule it, right? So I have a few things now. I have actually, which reminds me, I have to call my girlfriend tonight to tell her that we're not going to have our phone date tonight. I have a phone date with another clinician every Thursday night. We both get done at nine o'clock and we have a phone date on our drives home. And it's now become something really important that continuity of connection and knowing Mm -hmm. that we're going to be talking. It's really good for my attachment system to just have that regularity. And then after the last election in my small town, I started getting women together every Monday morning. It's my paperwork day. And who knew that this group of women that we get together and talk about politics and little ways that we can be politically active in our small town has become so important to my well-being, right? Because these are women who I deeply respect in terms of their capacity to get things done, but also in their relational empathy is profound. And when I miss that group, I kind of don't feel right (laughs) inside myself. And then the director of operations and one of our Sidewalk Talk City leaders has become like a sister to me. In fact, we were just joking because yesterday and the day before we didn't talk and usually we talk every single day. So we're like, oh, it feels a little weird. I haven't talked to you in two days. And (laughs) so those are all sustaining relationships. And then I like my husband a lot. I don't share with him work stuff so much. I just like to play with him, but I do like to connect with him. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? If you don't mind, 
well, you said you don't share work stuff so much with him, but you like to play with him. Yeah, you know, he and I are really different around, he has worked for the same company for 18 years, and I have worked for myself for 15, right? And so his understanding of my world and what it means to be the person that has to bring in the business, the person that has to make the money, like I'm not getting a paycheck. Also, he's an introvert. So sometimes when I tell him the things that I'm doing, he, <laughs> he doesn't. It's just not even in his wheelhouse. More if I talk to him about work, I'll share with him sort of my processing around it. Like, ugh, you know, I'm feeling badly about the way I showed up here. And I might ask for some comfort or I really want to celebrate this thing went really well. But in an odd sort of way, I actually am kind of turned on by the fact that he's not super impressed with me. <laughs> I don't know. We were just normal people. And a colleague of mine says, he says, I'm part of the Tracy Rubel fan club. He's not part of my fan club. He's my lover, my partner. It's a very different relationship. It is a different relationship. He doesn't have to be your fan. He supports you in a different way by being yep. your playmate. But there's also a piece where I'm guessing the two of you have to communicate about logistics and where you're going to be and where you're going to be going and what the next big vision that you have is and how you put this stuff together that also helps. How does your relationship help hold you? And how do you yeah. hold your relationship? There's, there's a piece in there, right? Yes, Absolutely. You know what? This is actually a really big deal for us because people say, how do you do everything that you do? And I said, well, first of all, it doesn't feel like a lot to me because this is how I'm wired. So please don't compare yourself to me. I have been like this for a long time. You can judge it. I get pathologized a lot, you know, for being an industrious overfocused at using sensory motor language. And this is what I'm doing, right? But I wouldn't be able to do what I do if I didn't have a very egalitarian relationship. I have a partner, you know, a lot of couples that I see in my practice, one of the complaints that comes up for oftentimes the woman is that they feel like they're doing a lion's share of running the house. And that is not the case in my relationship at all. I have a partner who is absolutely holding down the fort more than I am, frankly, sometimes. He's certainly neater than I am. He does all the cooking. You know, I'm going to be at this conference all weekend. So he's going to be parenting solo, right? And I do have to negotiate that with him because he also wants to have alone time. Yeah. But he accepts that about me. He knows this is kind of the challenge when you're in a really differentiated and individuated relationship is that you are constantly bumping up against one another and navigating how to care for one another as best you can. And there are some times that I have to say no to things because it's not good for my relationship. Yeah. I find that myself too, that there's definitely a pull between the things that really excite me and the things that really keep my family flowing and balanced, and that there are times where one wins over the other. Absolutely. And I think that's modern family life for all of us, right? So much. Yeah. yeah. It's still relatively new for women to be in leadership roles that pull them away from being home. Mm-hmm. And I think this is societally speaking and in terms of our families, it's a sign of evolution. 
it's also one of those things that perhaps we don't have too many models for in terms mm -hmm. of how to do it. So we're yeah. learning as we go and so are our partners. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I'm grateful for a partner who he has a very well-balanced masculine and feminine side. And so he's also not American. So he isn't impinged with the same kind of gender training that some men get. So he's kind of had an easier time of it. I think his biggest issue is that he misses me sometimes, but it's not about, you know. That's he, a nice has, issue to have. Yeah, you know, he misses me and he, he wants to feel loved, but he doesn't have the, it's, you know, your duty to, you know, run the house. He didn't come to the relationship with that. So, yeah. So can we shift focus a little bit? Yeah. We've talked a little bit about leading as a woman and relationships with both men and women from yeah. that leadership role. And yep. I'd like for us to dive in a little bit there because I know that you have a lot of insight here and maybe even just some really good questions for our listeners to be mindful of. Yeah. Well, you lead the way. What do you want to, yeah. you lead, you be the woman leader and lead me. <laughs> well, so I'm really curious, you know, along your journey, we've talked a little bit about how being a leader can be lonely. We've talked about trailblazing a little bit. We've talked about leading from that place of finding your flow. Mm -hmm. What do you find, though, are the biggest interruptions or things that make you question yourself the most? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, so I have some lovely gender training around being liked by everyone and being a good girl. And to be a leader means that sometimes you are not going to be liked nor a good girl in somebody's eyes. Mm. And that, hands down, is yeah. the biggest issue. And I think that is probably much more of an issue for the female gendered listeners that we have here than it would be for male gendered listeners. Yeah. 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 I mean, it could be tricky. I do think that a lot of male therapists also kind of run in a continuum of being pretty heart centered. So sometimes they can run into that too. It seems like a particular character style in a way, but certainly women get that gender training coming out the gate, right? And I did in spades for sure. And so how that shows up for me is number one, I negotiated early on crappy contracts with everybody because I felt like I might injure somebody if I really asked for what I needed in terms of money, in terms of commitments, collaboration, time. It meant that I overgave all the time. It's funny because I don't do this with my clients. I did do some psychoanalytic training around bad object work, but somehow that didn't translate into my leadership. So, you know, it's been kind of interesting. And that, I think that integration is happening. But that overgiving and not really checking in, hey, does, this, does there seem to be reciprocity here in this relationship? What is it that I need for this relationship to feel good to me? right? Things like that. I don't think I showed people how to treat me because I was too busy trying to be liked. I think that's such a beautiful observation. Thank you for sharing that. I think I know that that is often something that I have struggled with myself and I see it in a lot of the people that I work with as well. So I find that this is something that we can't be mindful enough of. Yeah. Do you have any, 
I mean, you've given so much already in this conversation. I know when we were talking before about finding flow, you were talking about feeling like you were embodied. And as we're talking now about checking in with yourself and noticing if there's enough reciprocity in the relationship, I'm wondering if there's any clues that you have found along the way that kind of lets you know when things feel good versus when they don't. Yeah. So... You know, this is new for me, but I actually, of course, had to do research on it. (laughs) I've been doing a lot of research on boundaries. You know, what happens is, for me, I wait too long. I usually don't know that I have a need sometimes in these business relationships until I'm pissed off. And then there can be a real rupture to the relationship, because then if you're approaching your need requesting from a really hostile place, then what happens is it's very difficult sometimes for that person to want to meet your need, right? Yeah. Even when you're doing it well and you're saying all the right things, your energy is felt, right? They can feel the passive F you <laughs> in your statement. So one of the things that I mandate from now, I should say I am in a mastermind group as well with other women who are leaders. And that's been really important. And then I have two other women that run their own group practices that I have a friendship with. So all that has been really important too, to share and be supported and some of the fears and, and things like that. But I now, like a friend of mine just contacted me and said, hey, I really want to help you guys out on the bus tour. Let's do this. I'm so supportive of you guys for Sidewalk Talk. I said, great, let's get it in writing so that we take care of our relationship. Okay, That's beautiful. So you're prioritizing putting it in that writing. I'm prioritizing putting things in writing from now on. And what that does, it's new. What that does is it really gets me to slow down. By forcing me to put it in writing, I have to even go through the process of asking myself, what do I need? What would feel good here? I think it's hilarious because I've been leading a couples workshop for the last several months on building your relationship business plan. And one of the women in my mastermind group says, I think it's funny that for the last year you've been working on this workshop and you're just now figuring out how to do this in your business relationships. I'm like, yeah, I don't know how I didn't connect those dots, but you're absolutely right. (laughs) Isn't that the way it works though? Don't we sometimes do things in business before we put them into practice? (laughs) It's just like, dang. (laughs) You know, I think this is such a valuable conversation. It's certainly something that I have struggled with myself. And, and it does. It backfires if you don't put things in writing in the right way. It, it shows up and it gets messy. Oh, right? man. I've lost some really precious relationships in my life because I did not create an agreement. And I will never go into business with someone again until we have an agreement. We're working with a woman at Sidewalk Talk right now who's going to be doing some grant writing and putting together our C3 paperwork. And I said to her, I said, hey, would you be willing to work on contingency until we get our first big grant? And it was all on email. I said, no, 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 don't get started. I want this in writing and I want us to sign something before you get started. I don't want any verbal agreements. I've done that and I just want to, and again, I, the language I use is this is how we take care of our relationship. And I think that's such beautiful language to use. It really helps to hold that conversation with the intention of we are taking care of our relationship as opposed to I need to get something from you. Exactly. And I think it's been a really helpful reframe for me because this would be the thing that I would like to invite folks to think about when they're thinking about leadership. Being a leader is not about being a bad guy or a boss or a jerk 
right? Being a leader is about being a strong, strong holder of relationship. That's what being a leader is. Okay, let's say that again. Being a leader is about being a strong holder of relationship. Yes. So that if there's ruptures in the group or if there's ruptures in the dyad or there's, you know, a rupture with a business partner, that your job as the leader is to be the one to stay steady enough, right, to keep that relationship potentially intact or have it end with grace. And girl, I'm saying this stuff, but they have not all played out that way for me, right? But it's because I didn't feel entitled to strongly hold that relationship. I also had some nervous system work to do, right? Because if you're running through life thinking you just have to be a pleasing good girl, right? Mm -hmm. then I'm not resourcing myself in a way to stay steady when someone's not happy with something that I might say to them. Right. It's all about regulating yourself and being able to stand in that solid place of this is what is needed here. I think it's also a sign of a leader to be able to notice what hasn't worked and learn from it and make those adjustments within yourself for the next time. Yep. Absolutely. No, there's so much... You know, I'll say that this is what I'm good at. I'm a really good mistake maker. There are some things that I'm not so proud of, and I'm not going to confessionally tell you what they are now because I have a shame spiral after I got off the call with you. But this one, I trust my earnestness at looking at stuff. And that feels good to me. Like even if I'm a jerk and I am acting some stuff out, I'm always tracking that I'm acting something out. I'm always curious about it. I don't just offhandedly say, you're a jerk. I also wonder, why am I calling that person a jerk? What's going on? What's happening inside of you? Like, I'm always interested in exploring. introspection. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this dance then that you're describing, that leadership is so much about listening, listening to the people you're leading, listening to the people that you're working with, listening to yourself, listening to those boundaries, and holding it all, whether it be in the form of creating expectations, which would be in some kind of contract. But that holding happens in the art of listening. Mm -hmm. That's right. I wish there was another word besides listening, because I can't, it seems like such a word that has entered the, the the sphere and it seems so simple, but it's a real deep relational presence with self and other. And I wonder uh, if maybe this is a place just for us to take a little nudge sideways because so much of your work with Sidewalk Talk is about listening. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if maybe you want to redefine listening for us and help us understand it the way that you do. Well, I really feel like whatever we hear comes into existence and what we don't hear doesn't. One of the quotes that I say is that when we listen to somebody, we hear them into existence. You know, we don't know that we exist all the way unless we're held in the mind of another, right? If you think about that movie Castaway with Tom Hanks, Humans are hurting animals. We go a little crazy, a little cuckoo in isolation, right? But on an existential level, 
until we can really fully hear, we can't fully birth that thing. It's about witnessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Witnessing and then midwifing something. Seeing it and bringing it into being. But it's so embodied. Like you're not bringing it into being through the mind, through analyzing and labeling, right? You know, I talked about parts work, and that's great. Mm-hmm. It's a great resource for me. But I've learned to get into this relational flow in my listening with myself and other people that is uncategorizable in the brain, right? It's a full body process of just being in a state of shared witnessing. I had um last Friday night in San Francisco, we were sitting on the sidewalk and the last guy that I listened to, we had a really great night. We had 11 volunteers and our chairs were full. We actually ran out of chairs. So we bought a couple of yoga mats and stuck them on the ground. <laughs> we had a, a 12 year old and she ended up listening to other young kids that came by. It was just amazing. And the last talker of the night sat down and he said, I love this project. And he said, it's so amazing. Like here we are connecting and now we're just in this relational flow together. And that kind of is all there is in life, isn't it? <laughs> like, it's what it comes down to. Well, you just summarized this project for me. He goes, because kind of nothing else really matters except for this moment where you and I are here as two souls connecting. I said, yep. And he was deeply in it with me. And we weren't talking about anything super intense. Yeah. We were just connecting. But he, was, he had the capacity to really drop in and be there. And to me, that sort of... You know how James Hillman talks about the, in the soul's code, how the soul kind of has to grow down into the body, right? Yes. It feels to me like when we get heard, that's what happens. We come down into our body in that relational exchange, in that hearing. We're just a little more embodied, but deeply connected with our soul at the same time. That feels so rich and so full. It feels like a really good place for us to land. It is the essence of what listening is. It is also the essence, I believe, of what true leadership is. Mm. It's that coming back into that wholeness, into following your path, being grounded and interwoven, integrated into your body yeah. and into the listening of what the needs are and what the community is. Yeah. No, I think that's right. Wholeness. Yeah. Tracy, thank you so much for carving out this time for us today in the middle of getting ready for your event. Thank you for having me. And I'm appreciative that they let me hang out in their space. They've been giving me some side eye for the last little bit, but I'll be a leader. (laughs) I'll handle it. (laughs) I'm really grateful for your time and for this conversation. I can't wait to share it with our listeners. Yeah, thank you so much, Rebecca. It was really grounding and lovely to be in connection with you for this. So I appreciate it. And just in time to get some San Francisco sirens. Awesome. (laughs) Awesome. It's a great way for us to end. (laughs) All right. All right. Be well. You too. Have a great afternoon. We'd love to hear what today's conversation stirs in you. Join our community on Facebook or find us on social media using the hashtag Pobscast. You can also send me an email at practiceofbeingseen at gmail.com. There's a link to click in our show notes if you're interested in working with me. I produce the Practice of Being Seen podcast along with the support of my amazing behind-the-scenes team, Christy Hausler and Nicole Stevenson. Music by Chris Farris Jr. and Sr. Produced by Kidneystone Studio. 
We hope that you enjoyed the show and will join us next week for another episode of The Popscast, brought to you by Connectfulness. <laughs>